What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Cold Shower Podcast. I do have a few housekeeping details to take care of before we get into the interview, but bear with me. I don't want to lose you here. This is important stuff. The first of which, I've alluded to this for quite a while. We're getting into some live events. Now, this first one that I am involved in is with a multi-time guest, Logan Call from Planted Cuisine. Him and I have decided to start a series called Let's Talk. And this first event will be taking place in the Traverse City, Michigan area. So if you are local, obviously that is where this podcast is based out of and where many of our efforts are focused. And what this event is, is we wanted to create meaningful, approachable ways and events that bring communities together to discuss critical issues in a safe, inclusive space that is open to all. Now, if you have even poked your head briefly online within the last three to four years, well, you'll realize there's quite a bit of division. Many people spouting off about many different things and not really giving each other much of a chance to share deep, meaningful conversation about important topic. And that is what we're trying to do here. So the first topic is simply going to be the importance of civil discourse. Imagine that. So there will be a panelist of four members who are going to go on the stage and share their opinions and their views regarding how important civil discourse is. And then from there, we will be opening it up to community members and attendees at the event to share their successes or their struggles or their failures when they have tried to have conversations regarding critical issues. So I want you guys to go to dinner debate and discourse.com to find out more about that event so that you can find out in what way you'd like to get involved or if you want to attend and have your voice heard. I will link to that in the show notes. I'm not going to spell that out for you because it's a long link, but it will be in the show notes. So please follow along or I will also post about it quite frequently in the next month or so on my social media because it is taking place October 23rd. Okay. I also want to give some love to our sponsors for this episode Lammy Wellness. Now they're a handcrafted loose leaf tea company and I'd mentioned them before that I have really been sucking down quite a bit of their tea lately. I think I have pretty much all of their blends although they're always coming out with new ones getting super creative on the names and the blends that they're offering. What they're trying to do is reinvent a classic beverage so maybe other than water tea might be like the second oldest beverage. Who knows? I don't know. Somebody can check that, but they're doing an awesome job. They're quality people behind this product and they put care into every order. My mom just ordered some last week. She sent me a picture. She was super excited and there was a handwritten note from these guys basically just saying thank you for the order. If you have any questions at all about how to steep your tea, how to get the most benefits and flavor out of the beverage, then please reach out to us and so I just appreciated that because it's my mom and they took care of my mom. So of course, uh, they are they are great guys. Um, the cool thing that they have just now started offering are these national park blends. And so what that means is they have these different blends that are then representative of some of our national parks here in the U.S. And anytime they sell one of those national park blends, 5% of the proceeds are then donated to the National Park Service. So, hey, what a great call because we can benefit now from drinking their tea, but also making sure that our national parks stick around for for a lot longer and maybe outlast us, hopefully. Uh, But really check out the website. It's Lamy Wellness, L-A-M-I-E, wellness.com for more of their products and see how you can get involved. And I will also link to their stuff in the show notes. Okay, real quickly, I want to give a brief overview regarding my guest that I have on this episode. Her name is Heather Hollick, 
and she is a speaker, a writer, a coach, and now an author. And we're going to talk more specifically about her new book, which is excellent. And I will link to that stuff in the show notes as well, if it's something that you think you would like to add to your shelf. But what a conversation, because she's someone that really has a, a super rich career path. I mean, she started out as a teacher of math and physics and then found her way in, in the intensity of Silicon Valley. She's lived in places like London, all over the U.S., and she now calls northern Michigan home. Uh, her book centers around the idea of approaching life with a sense of, of helpfulness. So asking yourself in every interaction that you're having, and especially at the workplace, how can I be helpful? And she just does such a great job outlining what that means, what networking should look like, and is a big help as we maybe try to navigate the workforce and how complicated that can be sometimes due to the differences of people's personality. We have some people who are introverts, some people who are extroverts, and there's always a million things to juggle. But she really does a great job of helping us nail some of this stuff down so that we can be more effective in our workplace or maybe when we're seeking a new opportunity. So what a conversation. She is super, super smart. I tried my best to keep up, but I hope that you enjoy this conversation with Heather Hollick and that you will give her the credit she deserves by checking out her book. All right, cue the music and we'll get into the conversation. Here we go. And we're live. Heather, thank you so much for joining me at my studio. And I just want to say I finished up your book and it's awesome. Awesome. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this is something that I think is very needed for people. And we were just discussing seconds ago about networking and whether people actually know what that is or if they're networking properly. But I want to start maybe with your beginnings as someone who was needing to network and learn how to do that. And then you weren't really happy with the way networking was done. Can you just take us through like when networking first entered your mind and what that looked like for you? I certainly, I was late into my second career. So I had my first career was high school or teaching math and physics to high school and college students. Okay. And that lasted about seven years until I got totally burned out and ran out of money. So I took a job in the corporate world and did really well. I fairly, you know, rose through the ranks fairly quickly. I worked in IT infrastructure, so servers and data centers and, and networks. And, and that was you know, kind of center for me, good work, work I liked. And I moved up quickly. So I started in Denver. I moved to Albuquerque. They moved me to Albuquerque. They moved mm -hmm. me to San Francisco. And I did that for maybe 10, 15 years. And then a couple of things happened. It was right around the year 2000. A bunch of things kind of converged at the same time. Um, the economy started to slow and I turned 40. Okay. And there's something about that midlife crisis that is just like, where am I going? I'm stuck. I'm not getting anywhere. And at that point, I did kind of what everyone does when they get into a mid-career slump and they're stuck. And so I went back to school. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and I started this MBA at the University of California at Berkeley. And I was thinking that the NBA was going to, the, the NBA, the NBA, the MBA, I'm kind of a Warriors fan. So. Hey, perfect. <laughs> me too. The MBA was going to, you know, be what got me unstuck. And it took me less than two weeks of being on campus. And you realize, because everyone's so excited to be part of this program, but all they're really excited about is they're part of this network. Okay. And that was just like, 
you know, the, the scales falling from Paul's eyes. It was just like, that was the epiphany. I'm like, oh my God, of course. Because I knew I was really bad at networking, but I just kind of wrote it off. I, I have a strong preference for introversion. I grew up in the country. My social skills are weak. I work on them. In fact, this is essentially a book about social skills. Um, but I just, I was not very good at it. And then I, I got to business school and these people are talking about it endlessly. And I'm like, all right, this is my chance. I'm going to learn this. And I started going to every networking event and I'd go to pub of the week and bar of the month and networking on the quadrangle. And I'm like, I'm going to figure this out. This is my chance. I'm only here for a couple of years and these are the people I want to network with. And you know, a couple months in and I'm like, I know this is important. I know it's right, but there's just nothing happening here, right? People are standing in a noisy bar on a Friday night and they're yelling at each other because that's mm -hmm. the only way you can hear one another. <laughs> yeah. I, I, so I, I, I did not throw the baby out with the bathwater. I knew there was something to this, but man, this is just can't be it. It certainly wasn't it for me because mm -hmm. I was just too introverted. It's not the way I like to spend my time. It stresses me out. My cortisol levels go through the roof when I walk into a mm -hmm. noisy place. So I became determined to figure it out. I probably spent five years in both like talking to people and reading books on it. I read a couple of excellent books. Um, Never Read Alone was probably the one that flipped it for me. The author of that book is a guy named Keith Ferrazzi. It's a brilliant book. It's 31 short chapters. You can almost read it like a devotional. I did mm -hmm. read it like a devotional. So when I was deep in job search mode once, I read a chapter a day. It's just, But the problem is, is, is Farazi has a very, very strong preference for extroversion. So all the stuff he's saying, I'm like, I, I can't do that. I, you know, he's like, whenever his, the title is Never Eat Alone, because whenever you go to a town, you know, never miss the opportunity to have lunch with someone. I'm like, dude, I need... Well, that's my time. Right. I mean, yeah, it's nice to go out for dinner now and then, but I'm not going to lunch every single day. That's, yeah. So I kind of rewrote it from an introvert's perspective. And in the process, realized that I'm not sure the extroverts knew what they were doing either. Hmm. So that's a big theme for me. I have a strong preference for introversion. I'm a certified Myers-Briggs practitioner. Because this was so relevant to me, I had to figure this out. And, and in the process, I came up with a way, and I kind of rethought the whole thing. I don't think we know what networking is. We don't know what a network is. We've mm -hmm. not really thought about it. We know it's important, so we go out. We do it. And we're like, I know I got to do this. I know if you, you, know, you want a job, you want... Free but, but we don't know what we're doing. Mm -hmm. So in a way, it's just a simple how-to guide. It's like, this is the social skills. Networking skills are social skills. Social skills are learned. I didn't learn them growing up. My dad was a bricklayer. My mom was a nurse's aide. We didn't socialize, really. So I had to learn late. And so I came to it just kind of, once I got to business school, and every, that's all everyone would talk about. It's like, guys, I know you're right, but you have no idea. Mm -hmm. you, they really don't. And they still don't. And I've sent copies of the book back to the school. And I'm like, they're, they're like, thanks. <laughs> right. So anyway, so that's how I got started was just figuring it out for myself. And then between, you know, reading a couple of good books on networking and then just, I'm a, I'm a good systems thinker. So I just kind of rethought the whole thing. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's very clear from the book is that there's, there's just so much in here. And, and there's, I like the way that it's laid out as well. I do well with books that kind of have little headings and then a paragraph or two underneath, and then you're moving on to kind of the next thing, but it, it lays it out for you. So you can look at the heading or the mini title within each page and get a feel for what's coming next. I don't know. I just do well with those types of books. It kind of breaks it up for me, but yeah, it was very clear that it was written by someone who understands the importance of networking, but wasn't happy with the current way that it was being done. So I think that there's 
when it comes to networking, there might be two issues. One, one that hopefully we can just get past is when people think they don't need to network to achieve success. I think there's probably very few jobs where that's the case, unless you're down in your basement, I don't know, uh, doing something on your own. So if we can get past that, but then yeah, once people realize how important networking is, they're still at a loss because they're going to those events, like you said. So can you kind of, I don't know if you can sum up uh, or if you did in the book, but like what is the proper way to network and how do we get into that and explore that? Probably the best way to get into it is just to kind of follow through. So this, thanks for the comment on the structure. That's my teacher, that's mm-hmm. the teacher in me. So I taught mathematics and physics. And unless you lay it out sequentially and kind of nice and orderly and A builds on B, which builds on C, mm-hmm. people, so that's, that's hence the structure. I can't, yeah. I can't help that. So, but maybe we should just talk a little bit about, so I went on this quest, what is networking, right? I'm going to figure this out. And I literally had it written on a whiteboard and I would stare at it like, what did, I got to figure this out. And one day I realized, so in mathematics and sciences, when we're stuck on an intractable problem, what we, what we try to do is if we can't solve the big problem, maybe we can break it down into a smaller problem and solve that first. And then if we get that figured out, we'll build back up again. Hence, again, the teacher, right? Um, so I'm looking at this question, what is networking one day? And I, I realized there's actually, a pre, there's a presumed question buried in it, right? There's an assumed question, which is what is a network? And that's when it kind of broke mm-hmm. open for me. So most people have never really given any thought, why would you, it's not a everyday question, What what is my network? And your first thoughts of that are, you know, it's well, it's the my address book, right? I have 5,700 people, whatever, I have a thousand people in my address oh. book or my LinkedIn connections mm-hmm. or my Facebook friends or whatever. And that is, maybe what a network is, but it's nothing I can work with. It's not helpful. I mm-hmm. had this, everything, things have to be useful. Definitions have to be helpful. So I realized one day that it's not a network, because I wanted some, some substance around this. What is my network? You know, what, what is a network? Um, so what, what I came to was, the, it's not the people, right? The engineers would say, it's not the nodes, it's the connections between you. And once you start to focus on that space between you, then that becomes, it's a completely different ballgame. And it's really revolutionary, actually, because the, the, the space between you and everyone you know, every one of those relationships, every one of those connections has two what I call magical properties. It has lots of properties, but two that are relevant to us, right? One is that every, every connection that you, every time you meet with someone, that connection you have with them has a degree of freshness. Mm-hmm. How fresh is that connection, right? And that happens, it's kind of a magical property. So when we are sitting here today, this connection is very fresh. And I argue that freshness has a half-life of about three months. So if I don't see you again for three months, that f- how fresh this connection is, is down to a half. And three more months, it's a quarter. And nine months, it's a eighth and a year it's a 16th and that's nothing right Right. so the freshness fades really quickly right and the other magical property is how strong that connection is so that also has so the sense and they're somewhat mutually exclusive so the strength of a connection you can have really strong connections people you haven't seen in 20 years but they're just you you would do anything for them and at the drop of a hat away you go way you go. So there's these two wonderful properties, freshness and strength. I like to actually visualize them. So for freshness, I visualize it as like a strand of light. And for strength, I visualize how thick it is. Mm. So with that, I now can visualize my network. 
So of these thousand people in my LinkedIn connections, I can visualize the freshness and strength of every one of those. And I've actually got this, and it's constantly emerging and changing because the freshness fades and the strength mm. grows. And so it's actually a living thing. It's this living organism. And so the first step was just to get a kind of a transformational thought of what is my network? And if that makes any sense to you, then what is networking solves it. It, it just mm -hmm. it kind of answers itself, right? Because if, if a network is this, connect, this collection of relationships that are defined by the freshness and strength of those connections, then networking is really anything that freshens or strengthens a connection. Yeah. And I, some people argue, and I, I'm an introvert, so it's not my top priority, but some people argue that creating new, you know, meeting new people is important. So I say, then the definition of, of a network is, you know, the, the collection of all these relationships based on the freshness and strength. And networking, what is networking now? What is the verb, right? Well, networking is anything that creates or freshens or strengthens a connection with, between you and someone you know. Now, once you put it that way, when I look around and people are screaming at each other at a noisy bar, I'm, I'm not seeing really any, maybe a little bit of freshening of the connection, not much fresh. I mean, just what's happening there, right? Yeah. However, what that did is it opened up the rest of the world to me because there are so many ways to freshen a connection with someone. It doesn't have to, doesn't, I wish it was always face-to-face, -face, but it rarely is, right? Mm -hmm. I can drop an email, I can ping them on Twitter. I, there's so many ways to freshen a connection with someone. And similarly, how do you strengthen one? Well, that depends on you and the other person and what they're doing and where they are in life. And, and that's also the dimension that so many people leave out, right? They mm -hmm. think they're just going to events and they're meeting new people and they're fresh and new. And, but what about the strengthening part? Because that's really where the power of your network comes is how okay. many of these relationships have some strength to them, have have some bond there, have some history, have some willingness to to do favors for one another. Because mm -hmm. that's, that's actually how you strengthen a connection. So we probably all can figure out how to freshen connections with one another, but what's the secret to strengthening them? Mm -hmm. And the answer is the constant exchange of favors and information. So mm -hmm. if you can think of a way to do a favor for someone or a way to offer them something that you know that they don't, I like to say, you know, we all travel the world in our various paths and we know stuff and we know people and that's valuable to other people. So basically networking is figuring out what do I know and who do I know that could help somebody? Yeah. So those, when you added kind of all that dimension, it's this about freshness and strength, and it's about the relationships with people, then you realize that most people are just kind of wandering around, mm -hmm. having no idea what they're doing. And so I go out very deliberately now. I'm looking at freshening and strengthening connections, occasionally adding someone new, but not near as important as most people think, mm -hmm. right? Networking is about nurturing and, and, and develop, developing those connections that you already have. Okay. Yeah. That, I think that that's important to consider because it can seem overwhelming to people when they think only of their network as something that should just be this expansive, yes. huge number of relationships. Yes. I think it's more manageable if we can think, no, oh, someone who's currently in your network, keep it fresh. And that's something that there's a couple of things that I think ne people need to firstly know, actually Firstly, is they need reinforcement on what they're doing if it's already correct. Because sometimes people are wandering around and they might be happening to do something correct, but they won't continue that action if they're not told that that was the right thing to do. And so I think there's people that are already doing some of those things just naturally. And for that, for you to be able to reinforce that to them is important. And then for those that aren't, they need to know the proper way of doing it. So I have a question in terms of networking because we all have our own network, our own relationships, 
no matter how fresh or how strong each one of those is. And then another person in our network has that, has their own network and their own relationships too. One strategy that I've tried to utilize lately, especially if it's someone that like I've met through the podcast, but I will try to strengthen the relationship. Like after we meet, I'll say, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And if there's ever anything that you need, I mean, I mean it, like if you need help moving a couch or something like that, I will come over and I will, I will help. Just let me know. So my attempt with that is to, firstly, I like a lot of those people and, and I want to do favors for them, but I also want them to think of me as someone that they can depend on. So even if I'm not checking back in, seeing how their day was, things like that, I'm hoping that I'm coming to mind as someone that they can trust for a favor in a time of need. Is that a good way of creating like a strong connection, even if it's not someone that you've had a lot of time to build a bond with? It's a great way, but it's very limited. Mm -hmm. So let me help you unleash the power of yeah. that, right? So my book is called Helpful, and it's all about embracing the world with a spirit of helpfulness. So the desire to be helpful is paramount. It's awesome. People want to be helpful. The challenge is we don't often know how. Same thing, right? We don't really know how. So the desire is there, right? Call on me for anything. I'm here for you. I'd do anything for you. The problem is they don't know what you know. I mean, if they want, if they want help moving a couch, okay, but you know lots more. You know stuff. Right. And you know people. They have no idea what you know. They have no idea who you know. And they're not going to really discover it because that's not discoverable. You know that. So the trick is then that the, kind of the onus is on you to figure out how to be helpful, right? So it's not enough. In fact, someone on LinkedIn just posted this this morning and I've been stewing over it all day. Mm -hmm. He's like, you know, how can I help you today is the world's best question. It's like, no, it's not. There's, there's, I don't know how you can help me. I don't know who you know, right? So let okay. me offer a better question because I put that in the same category as what do you do as, as they're well-intended but just flat questions, right? So what you need to do is you need to figure out how do I figure out what this person, who I know and what I know that might help this person. And I think, and I discovered this in a, in a, in a change.org manifesto. It's this little booklet of, of some kind of networking of some sort, but it had this little question buried in it, and it's really changed me. The, the idea, instead of asking people what they do or how can I help you, because you're putting the onus of responsibility on them to figure out how to help, ask them this question instead. It's five words. It's, I think, the most powerful question in the world. Instead, ask them, what are you working on? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's just such a, it's just such an open, ambiguous, lean-in question. And they'll be like, well, what do you mean what I'm working on? I'm trying to, I need help moving a couch. Perfect, I'm there, mm -hmm. right? But maybe I'm working on, you know, dealing with an aunt who's dying, or maybe I'm working on getting new tires for my car, or the people are working on lots of stuff. And the cool thing about that question is, as soon as people start talking about what they're working on, you can't help but think of ways to be helpful. It just, okay. It's a self-fulfilling networking question, mm -hmm. right? It's a naturally natural lead-in question. And I challenge you and all of your listeners, instead of asking people what they do or how it can be helpful, just it kind of feels weird coming out of your mouth the first time because people really haven't heard it before, but it there'll be a beat while people kind of process the question mm -hmm. and you'll be amazed. It's the most amazing. And there've been times when I've asked it and I'm like, I'm not sure if I should go bold with my question. And you, and I ask it, people just light right up there. Everybody's working on something. Mm -hmm. Everybody's working on something. If you ask this question at work, which I strongly advocate, but at work, they're probably going to tell you what they're working on at mm -hmm. work. Right. So I'm working on a project or a report or whatever, but just in general, people are working on stuff, right? right? And once they start, now that 
opens the door for you then because you run what I call this two question loop through the end over and over endlessly through your head. Who do I know? And what do I know that can help this person? Now that opens the door. So you've, you've communicated you're willing to be helpful, but even more so, let me try to figure out how to be helpful. And since they don't know what you know, you've got to find out what they're working on and maybe you'll think of something. Now, 90% of the time, I don't necessarily think of something in the moment, but that's how relationships get built. Mm -hmm. I'll keep thinking about that. And a week from now, a month from now, I'll meet someone that could help you. So I'll make the introduction. And guess what? Introductions are like, that's how I actually, so meeting new people. I don't go to events to meet new people. I trust my network. My network mm. introduces me to new yeah. people. Those are the best, right? Yep. So somebody will meet someone that says, oh, you need to meet Heather. And I get that introduction. Those are just, those are gold. They start out strong, right? Mm -hmm. So anyway, so instead of how can I, you know, the desire to be helpful is just, is the foundational. But asking them what are they working on is what opens the door for you to figure out how you might be helpful. And if you can't think of anything today, no problem. You might think of it tomorrow. You might meet the person next month that you're going to introduce this person. But that's networking. And I argue that's networking, right? Networking is not an activity. It's a state of mind. It's okay. not going somewhere to an event. It's how do I process my connections and my relationships with people? How do I think about them? And in the process, you know, I running through and I talk, kind of leaning back a bit earlier, um, I advocate going through your, your address book or your LinkedIn connections a couple times a year, what I call a network analysis. And how fresh is this connection? How strong is this connection? Do I wish it were fresher? Do I wish it were stronger? And in the process of that, you're networking. Now, it's fairly passive at that point, because you're. but when you reach out to someone who said, I wish that connection was stronger or fresher, that's networking. So networking is not, it's a state of mind. It's a way of thinking about your relationships with the people and acting on those thoughts. Not necessarily, I mean, if you, if you never reach out to people, you're not networking, but it's this blend of kind of thinking about and managing your relationships with actually acting on ways to be helpful. Mm -hmm. How do you, so obviously not everybody thinks of networking in that way. So if we have the contingency of people that have read your book and now they're going out into the world and they're thinking of networking as being helpful, in what way can I help? Who do I know? What do I know? Are there ever difficulties that they might come up, um, come across for when they have interactions with people who also have in mind to network, but not in the proper way? Like, how do you handle some of that stuff? Because there can be some selfishness involved in networking in terms of someone's going into an event or to meet someone and it's not to be helpful it's to benefit right so how do you handle that i i have tuned my radar to the point that i avoid those people mm -hmm. so I, I would say there's a spectrum of people and at kind of the the very good end is the people who want to be helpful and at the bad end is the people who are pretty narcissistic and are just out for themselves and in between there's a kind of all kinds of shades of gray um for the people who are neophytes, I, I call this the alliance of helpful networkers. For mm -hmm. the people who aren't there yet, but but get it, all I have to do is ask them what they're working on, and they warm up and they get the spirit of helpfulness thing, mm -hmm. right? For the people who don't get it, I don't want them in my network. So I, I was mentioning earlier, I, I came to write this and came to study this stuff because networking's broken. It's broken in three ways. It's not about events. It's not about meeting new people, although those can be part of it. But it's also not about a quid pro quo. It's not about getting something. And that's where most people go wrong. Mm. If you're if you're approaching networking as out to get something, then you're a six-year-old. That's mm. how six-year-olds think, right? We, we're supposed to grow out of that. Mm -hmm. You're supposed to... My approach is to embrace, embrace the world with the spirit of helpfulness. Full stop. Yeah. 
Now, if I do that right, then I will surround myself with people who think the same way. Mm-hmm. And they do. And that's how it works, right? But I don't do it because of that. I don't do it for the quid pro quo. And you see that a lot in the quote, you know, business networking literature that you got to give first before you can get. And that just drives me nuts. Mm-hmm. No, just give. Okay. Just give. If you do it right, you'll surround yourself with people who are also committed to just giving. You can't mm-hmm. help yourself. But if that's what your focus is, I steer clear of those people. Mm-hmm. I feel sad for them. They're living in a kind of a narcissistic world, and we've got too many of those. Yeah. I have no room for those in my life. And the beauty of it is people are born wanting to be helpful. We, this is a natural inclination for us. You just have to unleash it. You just have to give yourself permission. And this is particularly tough when you're in job search mode because when you're job searching, you actually are looking for something right. and you do need something. But the problem is, and I write about this, if you go out for the world trying to get something, especially a job, you're groveling. Mm-hmm. No one likes a groveler. No one. It's always it, it's a put off. I think that's why most people don't like networking. They either think they're supposed to be asking for something that makes them uncomfortable or they find themselves on the wrong end of other people trying to ask for mm-hmm. something and that makes them uncomfortable. Yeah. And when you embrace the world with a spirit of helpfulness, you get this warmth when you meet with people. And I'm just trying to be helpful. Mm -hmm. And I've not been disappointed. People have reciprocated, but not because I was looking for that. It's not required. It's not relevant. It's not part of the equation. So I I steer clear of those people Mm -hmm. eventually. And I've got a growing and rich network. And I don't really, that's, you you just filter, the world's a huge place. You just Mm -hmm. filter those people out. Yeah, that's that's cool because, like you said, you have your radar tuned. I think that probably takes some practice to figure out how to do that. But even if you don't have your radar tuned and can avoid them, you know, flat out or or quickly at least, it's naturally the the network is going to fall into place where it should be if yes. you're being helpful. So it's going to naturally filter those people out, and then you're going to be able to look back and say, "Whoa, my network is full of quality people and quality connections." I really like that. And I just love overall just approaching things with a, a spirit of helpfulness because you're right. I think we we're designed to be helpful. And I think that we all desire those positive feelings that come with being helpful because when you feel helpful, it means you feel needed and wanted and that you're fulfilling uh, a role. And that's that's something that we all have a desire for, I think. Yes. And I'm not saying we should be doormats either. So mm-hmm. there, there, is a, there is a reciprocity to this. And you have to assume that the people you're on, this is part of how it works, actually. Even people who aren't really thinking this way, if you assume they want to be helpful, you kind of co-opt them into it. Because we have a natural propensity to be helpful anyway. And if you're going to assume they're trying to be helpful, they can't help themselves. They mm-hmm. try They try to be helpful, right? So if you ask them what they're working on, or my, my favorite one is people will ask me what I'm working on. Now, I don't always, they don't always word it that way. Sometimes they say, what do you do? Mm-hmm. And I have now learned that the best way to answer that question is with something I'm working on, because that answer is a lean-in answer. They can't help themselves. So when you do that, so, so my, my point here is, I'm not advocating we be doormats. That that yeah. that's you know that's codependence. That's bad news. And I actually have some of that in my history. So I've had to okay. kind of work through that and come through the other side of that. But what I am advocating is help people help you. So first of all, I embrace full on. I, what are you working on? Who do I know? What do I know that could help you? But at the same time, I know you're going to reciprocate. You're a healthy human being, and when you do, I'm ready to answer that. 
So on the way over here today, I'm thinking, so if Tra Taylor asked me what I'm working on, what am I gonna say, mm -hmm. right? Because that actually changes depending who I'm meeting with. If I'm meeting with some IT professionals or some web, who I meet with is gonna affect that answer. Mm -hmm. So I come prepared to answer that. And I actually think that the question breaks down into like these four really broad categories. So what are you working on at home? That's kind of the safe, simple stuff. I'm working on getting my lawnmower fixed, or I'm working on getting this irrigation, whatever, right? I'm working on something at home. What are you working on in your job, at work? And that's, again, depending on your context. If someone from work asks you what you're working on, that's probably what you're gonna answer, mm -hmm. right? What am I working on at work? I think there's bigger categories, like what are you working on in your career? I think everyone should have, and this, I'm a career coach as well, and a leadership coach, so everyone should have kind of a, the next 18 months what I'm working towards. And since that's I do that coaching, people tend to answer in that category a lot because mm -hmm. I, I know I can be helpful there. And then what do you work on in life, right? I'm trying to get more sleep or get more health or more meditation or, and it just be prepared to answer in one of those ways. You'll find that people will answer you in one of those kind of four broad categories. Mm -hmm. And it actually, it's so fun, because especially if I'm meeting someone for the first time and I ask them what they're working on, and then I just like see where they go. Yeah. It might be really personal, it might be really bland, it might be whatever, but wherever, that's fun, go there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, I really like that too. And you said there may be that second where they have to think about that, they were waiting for you to just say hello or- Right, what do you, you know, do? What do you do, yeah. But most people really do wanna go deeper than I think you know we're giving them credit for, but to give them that chance right away is important. There might be that second of awkwardness, but they're, they're gonna be glad that you did that because we all, in some sense, want to share what we have going on because what we have going on and what we're working on is important to us. It's real. So giving that chance is, is awesome. Yes. Yeah. I'm trying to think. Um, you'd said that you're a leadership coach, right? Yes. That's your time. Yes. Okay. Yes. So something else that you're involved in. Leadership is something that I'm really, really interested in because I've seen it play out in different areas of my life at different ages. And the one thing that I wanted to talk about in terms of leadership, and we can jump back into networking too if we um, glossed over some of it, but there's times where, especially at a younger age, leaders will anoint or appoint leaders for your group. So whether that's in middle school basketball and the coach thinks he knows who the best leader should be, and so he starts putting that person in positions to be a leader, to say, huddle up and all these things, even at that young age, people know who the real leader is, or they know at least that that person's not someone that should be leading. Like, is leadership something that is born, is developed, or can be appointed? All of the above. Okay. I think it can be learned. I think it it's a reflection of natural gifts. I think it's a reflection of self-awareness. I think the best leaders are deeply empathic. They're, they're aware. And so sometimes the people who just emerge as natural leaders are the people who have the m most awareness of who they are and what makes people tick. Mm -hmm. So yes, all of the above, right? What, what, what fails is when we appoint leaders who have no self-awareness, no capacity for empathy, and yeah. they think of it as some kind of hierarchical authority, because there's, there's all kinds of all different kinds of leadership, right? So you can be appointed a leader and you've got a name in a box and it's higher than everyone else's box in the org chart, and therefore you're a leader, right? Mm -hmm. But in fact, people don't really follow that. Real leadership is when people wanna follow you. And there is some research, I, uh, there is some great research out of Stanford for sure of, of 
we are naturally organizing creatures. We do like hierarchy. There's there's some sense of too much hierarchy. It's easy to get too much hierarchy, but we do like we naturally organize into hierarchical structures. Mm. Take 20 people, throw them in a room, and within a few minutes, you'll have some kind of hierarchy of at least a, a leader will emerge, right? So you're right. There is some naturalness there, but that actually depends on the group. Mm. Um, I, I believe that every group will tell you how it wants to be led. You just have to listen, but that's the empathy again, right? What is this group? Who are these people? What are we doing? and where are we going so I am a I am a blend of yes you can appoint leaders but then you have to then as a leader be empathic and listen to the people both individually and collectively because mm-hmm. collectively the group you're leading has a personality as well and who is this group where are we going so both but the problem is too many times we have appointed leaders who don't have any of the natural gifts and then I think the natural gifts revolve around a capacity for empathy and a level of self-awareness yeah yeah that's something that I've often thought of because the one thing I credit my dad with is that he has this level. Well, he had a a low level of, uh, he wasn't too prideful to admit when he didn't know something. And I always thought that that was very valuable and I couldn't define it when I was younger. But now that I'm older, I see the value in being able to do that because we're all going to find ourselves in situations where maybe we're not the most suited to lead in that specific situation. It doesn't call for our skill set, or it's just something that we have no experience with. And he did a really good job of that. So if there was a time where he was amongst a group of people and they were looking for an answer, he would say, I really don't know. We need to find someone who's better suited to solve this problem. And I thought that that was really important because he was willing to take some of that embarrassment that might come along with feeling like inadequate but in the long run you're really helping the group because you're taking out the whole uh aspect of i'm going to pretend like i know what's going on and just so i can maintain this position of leadership so i think that it probably varies too based on the situation or the challenge that that is ahead of you and the other thing that comes to mind for me in high school basketball when i talk about coaches maybe appointing who they think needs to lead we had this athlete who was much stronger, faster, bigger than everybody else, but he was lacking in some of those key areas that you were talking about. So naturally he was expected by the coaches and some of the other players to be the one that would talk in the hut in the last huddle before we would go out to start the game. And two to four of us other uh, players on the team as everybody huddles down and they put their heads really close together and he starts rah-rah and trying to get us going and explain what we need to be doing we wouldn't put our heads down we would just kind of stare at each other and kind of giggle because the stuff he was saying it did not relate you could tell that he wasn't in the position that he should be in and then from there i would kind of whisper a couple of words on our way out to what i thought needed to be said but it was just interesting because interesting and frustrating as someone who you feel like this person was put in a position just because of the outside, the visible physical strength and things like that. So I, it was interesting to see how we had to maneuver through that. Mm-hmm. And you, you let him say his piece because he's your teammate and you respect him. He's actually a good guy. But then from there, you have to figure out how to still accomplish your goal, even though what he said wasn't 
totally valid. Like, right. can you have you ever seen that kind of thing play out in a work situation? Yes, and you've just given two great examples of someone who's wise and humble as a leader, and someone who thinks that it's an appointed position, and there's mm-hmm. there's things he's supposed to know and things he's supposed to do. In fact, the the emerging leadership that's mo- the modern organizations in the 21st century, our businesses are getting so complex, and our organ that that to think that you could know everything that that being a leader meant you know everything means you know everything is just absurd. Right? In fact, leadership is not about knowing more than your people. That That's actually upside down. Your people are way smarter than you are. Mm-hmm. That's why you have them, right? Yeah. So the job of a leader is, I, I think it's a two, two or threefold. I think it's, you, you have to know who we are, where we're going, and how we're going to get there. So you have to have that sense of direction, that sense of clarity. I call that clarity, right? So who are we? Where are we going? How are we going to get there? And you... You arrive at those answers, hopefully somewhat collectively, mm-hmm. so people are bought in, but that's your job is to articulate that and hold them to that. They, We want to be corralled like that. So we're waiting for you, Mr. Leader, to figure those things out because we're ready to roll on that. And then the next thing you have to do is figure out how to get the best out of your people, right? It's not like if you think you need to know more, go back to being a individual contributor then, because that's where we need you, right? The job of a leader switches completely. Um, when we when we move from from an individual contributor role to a leadership role, three three general areas switch dramatically. The way we spend our time, our values, and the third one has escaped me. So um, the way you spend your time as an individual contributor is doing the work, mm-hmm. right? But the way you spend your time as a leader is doing work through others, Right, your values change. So, as an individual contributor, your values are doing top quality work. As a leader, and this is hard to swallow at first, your values switch to getting people to do good work. Mm-hmm. And the first few times they do it, it might not be as good as you can do, but they're not going to get any better. Because mm-hmm. if you do it, it might be five percent better, but then they'll never improve. Right. And if you help them do it, they'll get better, and then you've got a much. So the the idea being that you have to you have to switch from doing the work to figuring out how to get work done through others. And that is actually a, a, a humble role. That is mm-hmm. not an authoritarian role. That is, you, you sit in the shadows, you sit in the background, your people do the work, right? Yeah. And and as organizations get more complex and we have engineers and I, who can, who, they know way more than, mm-hmm. than I do, right? My goal is to help them feel fulfilled, help them do good work, help them do the right work and get out of their way. Mm-hmm. So yeah, your dad was really wise. You don't need to know everything. In fact, if you think you know everything, you're kidding yourself. Mm-hmm. And you don't have the right people then. Get brighter people. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. And I almost wonder if in some in some cases, you know, there's people that can be waiting in the wings and they're definitely on the path to being a successful leader or someone that, that can play that role. But then I also think leadership isn't always an enviable position. It might be when we think it's totally about authority and being able to tell other people what to do. But in most cases, if the leader is doing it properly, I don't think it should be necessarily an enviable position because you're you're having to employ a ton of humility. Isn't that true? I think it's very true. I think you're spot on. I think the reason we have conflated leadership and hierarchy with contributing more value and therefore in order to get more money you have to move up in the organization and i think that's one of the things that is tripping us up in our economy right mm-hmm. now because the, you know the most senior the ceos are making millions of dollars a year are they really contributing that much right. more than the rest of the, or, the than the average worker in the organization no they're not 
right? So yeah, I think that's really wise. I think that you need to think about leadership as a role, but not necessarily as a hierarchy. And it's really sad. Actually, some of the smarter organizations are paying their employees based on the value they contribute and not necessarily the level they are in the organization. It's perfectly fine for an extremely valuable engineer in a high-tech organization to make more than the manager he works for. But mm. that's foreign, right? And so we get into this sense that, that, that somehow leadership, in order for me to advance, I have to move up. And I, I think it's more of just, it's just another role on the team. Mm-hmm. Somebody's got to corral this group, right? Corral this crowd. Yeah. And my fo- my phone keeps going off. I silenced my phone, but it's attached to my computer. So we're trying to figure out why my phone's ringing through the computer. Um, so I apologize for that. Yeah, it is. It is interesting, especially when you see like figures floating around of, you know, this is how much the average employee is making at a, con- a company versus, you know, the CEO. And you do wonder about the value that that person's bringing in comparison to the other role that the person's playing. And I don't know why, I think at an alarming rate, maybe because we're a, a capitalist society, we see, we seem to side with the CEO or, or whoever and say, well, they're, I mean, they got to the top, so they deserve that, that type of treatment. But I always wonder about that kind of thinking because there's going to be a point in everybody's life where that's going to come back on you. We're, not all of us are going to end up being the, the CEO of say, Amazon or anything like that. So we are going to be on those lower rungs of the ladder, and there are going to be times where we are undervalued for what we're offering our company. So I wonder why people seem to side with the CEO in those cases as a, as a whole or more on average, or do you not think that that's true? I, well, it's true in America. Uh-huh. So it, it's actually really just true in America. Okay. So in Europe, I lived in the UK for a while, mm-hmm. and I don't have the exact numbers, but I think there's something in the category of the, the ratio of employee to CEO pay is in the UK is maybe 50, 60 to one. Okay. And the ratio in the US is 400 to one. Mm-hmm. So the distortion is mostly in the US. Um, it is a distortion. It is not sustainable. And in fact, it's collapsing now. So the sense of inequality that we're feeling across the country right now is a result of this distortion. And the distortion, it's a distortion, period. Mm-hmm. So th- they're not worth that much more, right? There's no single person in the country who's worth a billion dollars for the the work they did. Mm-hmm. You, 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 did uh, you did not contribute a billion dollars more than the person yeah. is just not it is not so it's just been, it's a distortion mm-hmm. now what is the right number i don't know there is some value to being able to corral an employee full you know a company full of employees that's probably worth more than what i can do on the front line mm-hmm. um but it's not worth 400 times more or whatever the numbers are they're so distorted but the, and that actually is that infrastructure that kind of neoliberal capitalist infrastructure is creaking right now and mm-hmm. we're seeing that it's encouraging so we're seeing more b corps we're seeing statements come out from the organization of ceos that we need to be more than just about shareholder value mm-hmm. we need to be about employees and customers and supply chain and that that's that's the positive trend so i think we'll see that shift and it's primarily in america it's not in europe mm-hmm. it's not nearly as dramatic in europe because they they just Think of their work differently. That look, we all need a job. We all need work, right? And we need to work in places that aren't soul sucking. Mm-hmm, right. And we've kind of lost touch of that a bit in America. And it's coming back. So I'm, I just learned about the B Corps. Not learned about, but I heard an interview with a person who runs a company or organization called B Lab. So there's lots that's changing, but it's primarily an American thing, and it's truly a distortion. So yeah, we need to we need to dial that back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wonder if the 
distortion is due uh, also to the fact that you have these large companies like Amazon, as an example, who can now provide services in so many different arenas. So not only are they just large companies, but they're bleeding over into other services. So what started as supplying textbooks to college students now can deliver food, groceries, you can get your clothing there. So there's not as much space for those individual service providers. Like, do, would that have anything to do with it? It definitely has something to do with it, and it's, and it's even worse than that. So not only can Amazon do that, or, but so when you think about you know, all these service providers, there's what's called a sub, the value chain, right? So mm-hmm. from the beginning, when the stuff starts as raw materials through the hand the end product over to the customer, it touches hundred thousand, hundreds of different people, right? Different organizations. That's what's called the value chain. And what happens when these companies take over is what they squeeze all the value out of the value chain. Mm-hmm. Let me give you an example of what that means. So there's no Whole Foods up here, but we used to live in North Carolina and various places. Whole Foods is one of our favorite places to shop. Yeah. And when Whole Foods first started, all they sold was other people's stuff. Right? And it wasn't cheap, but I was willing to pay that because I wanted that farmer or that independent business to be successful, so I would pay for that. But now, and this happened before Amazon bought them, but it's getting way worse now. Now when you go into a Whole Foods store, more than half of the products are Whole Foods branded products. Mm-hmm. Well, guess what that means? That the, the people who actually used to make those products that were on those shelves are actually still making them. It's just... Whole Foods has said, no, no, you're going to put our name on it and Mm -hmm. we're going to pay you half as much. That's squeezing the value out of the value chain, right? I don't do that. I don't buy those products. I'd rather move to the shelf over and spend an extra buck and get help somebody because every dollar you spend is an investment in someone's success. And I think of that in retail as well. So yes, that's happening in the Mm -hmm. corporate world. And I also think that's an atrocity because we are squeezing the value of the value chain and we, we all need to make money and we all come up with these business ideas. And then somebody comes along who's a bigger player and they squeeze the value out of us and that's just not it's just not the way economies are supposed to work we just the whole purpose of a company is just to provide a job we just need to work we need Mm -hmm. we need a roof over our heads we need food stop this competitive stuff and stop beating people into pulps yeah we just need to work yeah that's really fascinating to to talk about that kind of stuff um it's something that i i hope there's a shift coming. I think and, there is. Yeah, and I like to credit my generation with that, but yes. I don't know if we can <laughs> take all the credit for it. Um, but I, I truly hope so. And I think that in order to make that change, you have to have a generation or a couple generations that are willing to see that change and then also take cues from people that are older than you and see what they did correctly. And one thing that I am also fascinated by is generational differences so you know generation x versus baby boomers and all these things and what those differences are and i've i've said as i formulated in my head that i think to be a successful generation so i'm a millennial i have to look at the things that the generation prior to me did well and and remind myself to continue those traditions and then what they did wrong i have to clean up and make sure that i cut that out of what i'm passing down and then also how can I tweak things and make them even better for the next generation? If we all can take that mindset, not just with generations, but in the work that we're doing every day, I think you will be able to facilitate so many other people's success and you'll be able to be helpful, like you said in your book. That's awesome. So I'm a late baby boomer. Mm-hmm. So how have we failed you? I, I think that's a, that's a scary question, uh, sitting across the table from someone who is very smart. Um, to me, I think that we were given maybe some counsel in the sense that college is the best route 
that's the it that's the route that is going to lead to immediate success now i think that that is a good route for many people the issue is when there's all that debt that comes along with it and college i believe is important but i think jumping directly into college when you may not have parents who can fund the full four-year degree for you can be a bit dangerous because you're asking an 18-year-old to make a decision about their future and what they want their future to look like and what uh, career path they're going to choose. And most times we change our mind or those, those students change their mind. So you're being punished with that college debt after you've kind of changed your mind or shifted gears or realized that maybe your degree isn't as valuable as it should be because there is that ratio. There's that ratio of you know, does it make sense to get this degree when my entry level job is going to be $30,000? Well, it's going to take a really long time to pay back that student debt. So that is one of the things I think that what worked for previous generations in terms of college, I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, really did lead to success. It led to a good middle class living. And I don't think that that's the case right now so that would maybe be one of my main issues you can debunk that if you'd like again having lived in europe and knowing Mm -hmm. a bit about europe i would say where we failed you is inextricably linking college with debt Mm -hmm. that if college didn't cost anything or certainly didn't cost your life learning is good what you learn at college i mean my college i went in this whatever i went a long time ago (laughs) i mean it was transformational right and yeah the things i studied then i'm am i using them now i would argue i am but i'm not solving differential equations every day if that's what you mean Mm -hmm. right so i do but the the damage that we have done is we have linked it so much to the fact that it and and the costs have gotten out of control so again going to europe there's countries in europe where college is free or very affordable so i would throw that back at you. Mm-hmm. The mistake we made is is making it so expensive. College yeah. should be public. It should be that's what public institutions are for. Mm-hmm. And I'm okay to pay a token amount just because you tend to value things you pay for, but but amounts that you can pay for working a part time job at the student union building, not amounts that take the rest of your life to pay off. That's right. just, that is the failure, right? Mm-hmm. Not the college, but the de- and yep. so as a result, you have no choice because that's the way it is right now. Mm-hmm. So you have no choice. The debt's not worth it. Right. That's really sad. So that I, we take that. We failed you. That's awful. Yeah, I, I, that is a good way of a good way of putting it because certainly there's lessons and and skills that I gained in college that I would not have been able to obtain without going and spending time in the classroom or with my professors and my my peers. And I'm okay with like you said that token amount. I'm not someone who's, you know, saying free college for everybody and and all those things. What I am saying is that I don't want to be unfairly charged. Right. for that right. for that degree and that's definitely what has happened with the cost of tuition it's inflated and it's it's unfortunately it's our generation's taking the brunt it's of it away. i heard yeah. someone ask the other day they can't even figure out where did where why is it so expensive mm-hmm. because all the professors are adjunct now they're not even they're not even make paying the professors mm-hmm. they're paying them you know minimum wage not quite, but they don't pay. The, it's not the yeah. professors that are. So we're we're not even sure where the money's going. It's really gotten distorted again, yeah. distorted. Yeah, that's so strange. life is about learning. It's not necessarily. I guess you're right. At the moment, until we fix it, it's not about getting the degree. Mm-hmm. The problem is, degree, people go to college for three reasons: for the credentials, which is you know you go to a school that has some credibility to it. For the content, you need to learn the courses, of course, and for the network, for the people you mm-hmm. meet. 
Um, so to skip college, you're going to miss those three things, right? Yeah. Now, the, the credentials is neither here nor there, but the content's important and it's accessible. You can get a lot of that stuff online now, so do that. And maybe then the third piece of the, the, the connections, the relationships, you maybe you use Helpful to go build your own network then. Mm -hmm. But you do need to keep learning. You need to, yes, the, the degrees you get now, you're not going to use in five years anyway. That doesn't mean you shouldn't learn now. Because yeah. learning now is, how, is you teach your brain how to learn. Mm -hmm. Anyway, yeah, I think the part we failed you was we've made it so damn expensive. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of back to what we're saying easier, squeezing all the value out of the value chain. People are just, every year, they you know, the, they raise and raise and raise, and they've gone too far. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That, I'm glad we could break that down because that is a, a qualm that I think many millennials have. But I'm also, I, I need to remind myself and fully admit that there were things that I learned in college and that I experienced that I just would have never, ever gotten had I not gone to school and if I would have remained, you know, in my, in my hometown, I mean, there's benefits to that too, but it's, it's something that I certainly experienced from and I would not be the same person. I don't even think I would be able to interact as effectively as I think I can with people on this podcast if I hadn't learned the things that I, nice. that I did in college. So I definitely am using what I learned in some capacity. It's not always the capacity that you think it's going to be, but it definitely is. But but that's having an open mind to learning. So understanding, like you said, with the with the equations. I don't even remember what kind of equations you'd said. But differential. Differential um, equations. Yeah. Just because you're not filling those out or solving those every day doesn't mean that you're not using what you learned. I mean, you you were still exercising your brain and, and being taught skills that are still benefiting you as you turn into an author. It's pretty crazy. There you go. So how are you continuing to learn? Are you continuing to learn? Yeah. So I'm a big, I'm a big reader. Um, I, I'm usually on like two or three books at a time. And then I also have just found the value in interacting with people. Like that's the main, the main thing is just talking to people. And it's funny. I can't remember. Did you say it in here? I think the book that everybody should read if they haven't, uh, is how to win friends and influence people because it's an old book. I mean, the idea, how old, how old is he or would he be now? 20s, 30s. Maybe? Yeah. So yeah, like, from the 20, I yeah. just felt like he was ahead of the curve in the sense mm -hmm. of he understood the value of making people feel special heard. and yeah. And heard and like they had a purpose. And I really enjoyed that. And when I read that, the one thing that stuck with me was, um, if you go to a party and you zero in on somebody and focus on getting them to talk about themselves all night. When you leave that party, they're going to turn around to their whoever they're with and say, man, that was the most interesting person I've ever met. And they're going to fail to realize that they know nothing about you. All they did was talk about themselves. But people like to do that. And it's mm -hmm. not in a bad way, but people just want to feel heard, like you said. So that's something that I I was laughing when I read that. Like he's going to they're going to think you're the most interesting person in the world. And all they did was talk about themselves. Mm -hmm. But that's, we, that's right. we need to implement that. We need to do more of that. You're going to learn so much more if you're willing to listen than if you're, if you're just talking the whole yes. time. So that's, that, I think that's my biggest way that I'm still learning is just talking with people and trying to shut my own trap more often. People yeah. know a lot. Yeah. It's really mm -hmm. nice when you, when you tap people to say, tell me what you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. What about, what about you? You said you're from the, the baby boomer generation. So are you like, is your strategy different? I know that you outline a lot of it in the book. Well, but... I'm a voracious learner as yeah. well. So I read a lot. Like you, I've got two or three, four books going at once. Um, the way my brain works, I tend to develop 
theories and models, and then I read stuff to kind of flesh that out mm -hmm. and hypo test hypotheses and stuff. So I have, you know, I have theories around where capitalism's going, where our economy's going, where our politics are, and so you just kind of read to to flesh that out. And it's not it's not for confirmation bias. It's not to confirm what I know, but I think it works like this. Am I right? So it's this kind of give and take of I hypothesize, I theorize, and then I'll read something and get a better. And then th that's just this this the virtuous loop of, okay, now I understand this, so I can go read some more. But mm. yeah, I'm always reading one or two nonfiction books at once and maybe a fiction book, just constantly. Because that's, that's and, and having now written a book, the amount of effort it goes in to take to, in fact, I read less online now because I mm. realize there's just, and I write blog posts too, but there's just so much more has gone into someone who's written a book that it's worth just savoring that, just digesting that. It's, it's more substantive. So yeah, I read a lot of books as well. Mm -hmm. And then I, I play with ideas. So I'll talk to people or I'll, I'll test ideas and then I'll go find articles or people who've researched that. And um, it's that kind of constant state of scientific inquiry, mm -hmm. I guess. Yeah. It's fun to try to formulate stuff in your head and then see how well it ages. Yes. So that's something yes. I've had, you know, like that generational thing that I explained, like what I think leads to a successful generation or, or a more ideal one is that took me a while to flesh out. And it was, I thought of it like a couple of years ago. I don't know if it's a revelation or anything, but um, I think it's aged pretty well because it's, it's easy to point out the flaws of other generations, other people, but you also need to make sure that you're implementing you, you know, looking at your own issues and how you need to, to fix those so that those don't become a problem down the line, either for yourself or the people coming up behind. But have you ever had like ideas or theories that you fleshed out and then a couple years later, they just like didn't age or have oh, they all done? No, tremendously. Well? Yeah. No. In fact, those have been some of the most traumatic moments in my life yeah. when I, things that I thought were true. And then you have this wake up call probably two or three times. Seriously. I mean, sometimes it's been personal stuff. Sometimes it's been just kind of intellectual academic stuff. Oh yeah, it happens a lot. And I can't think of any cause they're probably too traumatic, but it's definitely happened to me more than once. Yeah. 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 Is that something that you try to avoid being wrong or do you always have the mindset of like, I need to just be prepared that I'm probably incorrect in this yeah, situation. The latter, yeah. the latter. I, I know that? I'm wrong yeah. I, because it's it's part of maybe humility, right? The more I learn, the more I know I don't know, and so that sense of I could be wrong. Um, one of my favorite metaphors, not metaphors, favorite stories around that is the whole Galileo and the and the heliocentric model of the mm -hmm. universe, right? So for a thousand years. We thought that the that the Earth was the center of the universe, mm -hmm. and they convinced themselves it was so because they couldn't feel it moving. Mm -hmm. And so they developed these really complex models. And as science started to progress, the the people, the astronomers trying to map the stars and the planets were like they had the it, the models didn't work. So they kept you know jury rigging them and jury rigging, them, but try to make them work, and they didn't work. And finally, Galileo comes along and says, "Well, guys, actually, we're thinking about this wrong," and. In fact, the Earth, the Sun, the Earth revolves around the Sun, not the other way, and it freaked people out. Yeah. That has been that is so profound to me. There, there's a there's a book called The Creators by a by an author named Daniel Borson, which is mm -hmm. just I think I have a quote from him in there, which says the greatest obstacle to the discovery of the shape of the planet, the Earth, Earth or planet or universe, I'm not sure which one, um, was not ignorance but the illusion of knowledge. Right, and yeah. so I because we thought we knew, mm -hmm. and so because we thought we knew, we didn't look anymore. And I've always been haunted by that. So mm -hmm. I'm always wondering: Is this just an illusion? Could I be wrong? I know I could be wrong. I've been wrong enough times to, but 
at the moment. It, but that's also kind of how science works. Science mm-hmm. is always just a hypothesis yeah. trying to be disproven. And until I disprove it, it holds. Mm-hmm. I think that's a healthy way to think about life because we, we, we're biased. We have perspectives. We're, we're, we don't know stuff. To you, to think that you know something yeah. is like hubris to the max, right? So I try to be—I don't try to be humble. I just—I've been wrong enough times, or mm-hmm. or incomplete. That's more like an incomplete, okay. often, right? Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I'm fascinated by this. My my next question is, because I, I think we have similarities in that we we've been wrong enough times, and we <laughs> we just know that what we we think is true right now is probably going to change shape at the very least uh, down the line. But how do you continue to put out effective work knowing in your head that you might be wrong or that it's not a, as shaped as it should be for you to even speak about it? Like, how do you how do you do that? How do you write a book feeling like there's some self-doubt there? That's a really, really good question. I think writing the book wasn't hard. Mm-hmm. Promoting it is hard. Yeah. And kind of for that reason, do people really want to hear this? Mm-hmm. I know it's right. It's right for me. It's right for introverts. It's right for extroverts. Um, but there is a sense of, well, maybe other people won't see it that way. I, I, good point. I don't have a good answer. Mm-hmm. I think you just, I'm pushing myself through. We get validation, I guess. And the more validation I get, which is to say the more times I speak to audiences or I, people buy books and give me feedback, that propels me on. But mm-hmm. yeah, I have my doubts sometimes. Not that I doubt the book, but that's just part of, I think, being a thinker is what if, right? What yeah. if? So we tend to, it's way safer to start working on the next book than to push this one. Cause I yeah. know I'm right on that one. Mm-hmm, right. right. So yeah, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a humbling way to live, but how else, how else mm-hmm. you going to live? Right. Right. Yeah. And if you want to be a, a part of a pleasant network, I think you need to like have that understanding. You, know, you don't I, want to I think, think you have it all figured out. I think the, the position, well, I could be wrong, is just one of the best places to be. Mm-hmm. This is the way it seems to me, but I could be wrong. Cause I'm, not maybe maybe not who it doesn't matter i could be wrong but you do have to take it you do have, you have to have some formulation though you do mm-hmm. have to think right you can't just be a, a, a or a marshmallow right right so you do have to take some position but to have that humility to say but could you know prove me wrong that mm-hmm. actually makes for good conversations too right yeah yeah when we're talking about doing good work which i'm convinced that this book is good work you mentioned validation and that's one thing that has been interesting as I'm figuring out how to how I'm figuring out how to market this podcast and and try to share it with people and make it appealing is the one thing I've started to do is when I get someone reaching out to me saying how it positively affected them or impacted them, I'll share that message. I'll keep it um, anonymous, but I'll share what they said. And I hope that people don't take that as me stroking my ego. Honestly, it's a lifeline mm-hmm. for me. Nice. It's the reason that I feel like I can do the next thing. So when you're reaching out or not reaching out, when you're leaving a review or not leaving a review, you're having an impact. And it's either uh, it's something that I think not showing support for something that you enjoy and do support is is negative. I think that we need to also be more willing to tell somebody good job when we think that they're doing a good job. Sometimes we assume that they just know that the work that they're doing is good. They don't. I, I, when I'm wandering around my house, I constantly questioning, was that podcast good? Was that conversation good? Is that something that people are actually going to care about? And then once I get that little bit of validation, 
it's not so much an ego stroke as it is fuel to go on to the next project and keep providing content. So I love validation and I try to validate people as often as I can. And so I'll do that right now. This book is awesome. And, (laughs) and I hope that we can, um, figure out how to promote this for you because it's contains information that people need to know because we're skewed on our, our definition of networking and, and how to create those relationships and freshen and strengthen connections with people. It's awesome. It's a great book. I love it. Let me expand on that thought too. I, I live with the mantra to honor the value you find in things. I have never downloaded a free song. Mm. I pay for the services I use online. Occasionally I'll use the free service, but as soon as I start using it, I'll pay because I honor the value that I find in things. And that is exactly what you just said. When I read a good book, I write a review because I honor the value I found in that book. I, I, I can't help but honor the value I find, right? And so when people do something for me, I honor the value, whether I pay them with money or some other way, to not honor the value is to be a parasite, mm-hmm. and I just can't. So I, that sense of honoring the value, and yeah, giving someone some feedback, sending them a review, sending them a note how good it was for them is actually honoring the value that you mm-hmm. got for it. So I, that's how I live. I think I, I think that's part of just being trying to be helpful and trying to be humble is is to not be egocentric about it or narcissistic yeah. about it. I think I, I struggle a lot with it. I think there's a lot of narcissism in our world and we give it too much room. And so I'm fi- mm. this part of what I'm fighting. Yeah. So embrace the world with the spirit of helpfulness. You know, honor the value you find in things. It's just trying to get people to be more, to be less mm-hmm. self-centered and egocentric. That's perfect. You, I mean, you said it right away in the beginning when you were talking about how you kind of filter out those people who are narcissistic. Maybe they're not networking with the right intentions in mind. And if we can all take that approach, then I think we're going to give those uh, narcissistic people like two options. And the one option is to not be involved in any of the cool stuff that we have going on, or it's to adjust and figure out how they can then be helpful too. So it's awesome to to think of it in that way of you're being helpful and you're surrounding yourself with people that are helpful. So can we squeeze out some of those negative, you know, people because we don't want, we don't want to leave room for, for them because we have important stuff that we need to be doing. I think. Exactly. Exactly. And I, I do have some compassion for the narcissist. I think that narcissism is just a result of a lack of self-awareness, mm-hmm. but thinking about this for decades and I'm kind of where I'm at right now. So my first thought is, can I help this person be more self-aware? Cause if I can, they will, be less narcissistic. And if I can't, then I can't help them. I don't have room for them. Then there's so anyway, but yeah, that I think that's our goal is just is to eliminate maybe not those people, but that sentiment from our mm-hmm. lives, right? Yeah. That we don't want to we can't live for ourselves. We don't live for ourselves. Our lives are so interdependent from from everything you've touched today has been touched by a thousand other people. Mm-hmm. We're just completely interdependent. The road you drove on, the car you're in, the food you eat, we're completely an interdependent species. And not just other humans, but other species. Mm-hmm. And to not lean into that and not to embrace that is is just just sad. And so yeah. my first thought is to help people wake up. And I, in a way, this is a book helping people be more self-aware. There's exercises in there along that line. Mm-hmm. Um, and if that works, because because narcissism is a, self-awareness is a spectrum, and narcissism is a spectrum, and you know not, not everyone is irredeemable. Most people, part of our culture is just narcissism is okay. Mm-hmm. And part of what I'm saying is, no, it's not. Not for yeah. me. I don't take it. No, no room here. Right. Yeah, there is that kind of alarming aspect of our culture that seems to be, you know, get, get yours. You can do it on your own, um, self-made. And those are all things I don't, I don't think, 
I mean, self-made to me does not exist. And I've talked about that in the past. There has been at some point in every single person's life where they've depended on another person. None of us, no matter what level of success we're achieving, and it's on different scales, none of us are self-made and ever will be. And I don't know why that seems to be something that gets thrown around, but I think we're going to change that. I think it's cool. Please, please yeah. do. It is a bastardization. It is, it is atrocious, right? You're not self-made. You drove on a road that someone else laid down for you. Yeah. You drove in a car that some other buddy designed and somebody else made for you. You function in a system that has legal protections and copyright protections and trademark protections. You have a, you have a functioning quasi-functioning government. I mean, all those <laughs> things are made, made. You were born in a country that it was possible to do this. Mm-hmm. All those things. You were the, the the idea of self-made is just so alarming to me because it's just to, to not be aware of all these other things around you and all these things that have contributed to your and the part that really makes me sad is because you're leaning out you're mm-hmm. saying no it's just me and I'm like no it's yeah. all of us right lean into it lean into our humanity lean into our interconnectedness that's how that's what success looks like right mm-hmm. we're not on this planet very long so lean into our interconnectedness and the people who say they're self-made are leaning back they're like no no I'm on my own or, you're not first of all you're not mm-hmm. and B wake up right so yeah. either join join us or or stop kidding yourself so mm-hmm. man this was this was awesome do you have anything I didn't want to like cut this too short. I have time. Is there other networking pieces that you wanted to share? Like wanted to make sure you covered. We you got, know, if you got me started, it would take me three more yeah. hours. Hey, so. well, I want to bring you back. This is awesome. <laughs> Part of the reason I wrote the book actually is people ask. I speak about this a lot, mm-hmm. right? And they ask, you know, can you speak about it for twenty minutes? And I'm like, no. <laughs> yeah, it takes me an hour and a half because I kind of got to go through the whole what is a network mm-hmm. and what is networking and the world's worst networking question and what do you. So my, I guess my answer is no. I wrote it down. Um, I think I've laid it out in a pretty logical way. Yeah. Um, if people like it, join my email list. We're starting the Alliance of Helpful Networkers, and we're just going to kind of hang out together and and figure out how to do this. But we've got to start embracing the world differently. Mm-hmm. And my my suggestion is is with this spirit of helpfulness. And this spells it out, kind of ABC. I, I, I call it a, a combination of... Um, and I'm dating myself here, so it's a it's a blend between Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance mm-hmm. and Who Moved My Cheese. Okay. And by that I mean Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance was what looked like a road trip of a man with his son on a motorcycle. It was really this deep philosophical mm-hmm. text, right, about truth and meaning and and beauty. And Who Moved My Cheese is like this absurdly simple, practical, very practical. And mm-hmm. so my book kind of bridges both of those. There's steps where it's like, here's how you do your LinkedIn profile. Click here, click here, put yep. this, put that. And there's other steps about, you know, life is about embracing the world with a spirit of helpfulness. It's about thinking about other people first. It's about, And so it's this blend. And no, it took me 280 pages to write it yep. all down. So I hope people will enjoy it. Um, and I'd like to continue the conversation here. And yep. anyone else who joins in, let's, let's do this we've got to change the way we're working um, life is too short to to live stress mm-hmm. yeah th- i mean this was awesome i thoroughly enjoyed your book and i knew this was going to be a great conversation and it was i was fascinated by people who are intelligent and who think through things and theorize and formulate and then actually put things into practice and so whether you know it or not you are leading the charge on creating a contingency of people who are going to be helpful and it's going to it's going to have a big impact and so thank you so much for taking the time uh, being here do you have any spot people can reach you that you want to do that my website okay. heatherholic.com first name last name uh, my 
Twitter is Heather Hollick. My LinkedIn is H Hollick. But you find all that on my website. Yeah, so heatherhollick.com. It's all there. My book's there. You can order it from there. Get on Amazon too or any bookstore, but you can order it there as well. Perfect. Yeah. And I'll link to all that stuff in the show notes. So once again, thank you so much for coming on. This was really fascinating. I learned a lot. Thank yeah. you, Taylor. It's been an honor. Thank you. Yeah. And thank you guys for listening. Bye-bye.